Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240, for Autumn Semester 2023. Today, financial statements. Before we do that, as usual, we're going to have a look at the numbers. And we just do this all the time, just until you, so you get sick of it. So, pursuant to that, um, let's try this. As you're looking in your, through your stuff, bull day or bear day? Bear. Bear, yes. It's, uh, and I mean, this is a fairly bearish bear day, a bear bear day. But it's not a bear, bear, bear day. It's just, it's down. You see uh, that the Dow is down the least. And I have to look here because I can't see it up there. It's down a little more than a half percent. S&P 500 is down more, 0.7%. And then the NASDAQ is down more than a full percentage point. As usual, that's, you notice that pattern just keeps showing up. Higher risk means higher reaction, more reaction to the news of the day, good or bad. That's the typical pattern. And it, this is a sour day. Uh, why it's a sour day is a little bit uh, kind of dodgy. The one big thing that's been going on, as you can see, crude oil has blown uh, up uh, noticeably. It's at uh, 87.56 a barrel. It has eased off from how bad it was. The cause of the rise was the announcement of an agreement between Saudi Arabia and Russia to cut their oil production with the purpose of reducing supply, driving prices of oil up. Now, this is problematic. It won't last for a couple of reasons. First of all, Russia obviously needs hard currency, and with sanctions, it's about one of the only ways it can get hard currency is by selling oil on the international markets, which it's allowed to do. And so Russia is all in favor of having the price of oil go up. And Saudi Arabia is playing along with this. The problem with that is, obviously, Russia is going to increase its production of oil once the price of oil is up. They're going to cheat on the agreement. And the other problem is that other countries that are oil producers didn't sign on to this. So when the price of oil goes up, they're just going to increase their production to take advantage of the higher price of oil. That's going to mean that the global supply of oil will, within a month, start to rise and the rising price of the rising supply will drive the prices back down. It's classic, it's nothing to worry about, although it will be problematic in the short run. Interestingly, we haven't seen the price of gasoline go up yet, or diesel, simply because there's so much supply of those outcomes of oil in the supply chain all right now. <coughs> that uh, the price isn't going to be affected by what's 
the, the re restricted supply down the road a little bit. So yeah, the price of gasoline will probably go up, price of diesel will go up, energy costs in general will rise, but it won't be a long-term problem. It's, but we're going to have to deal with it for a while. Uh, always keep that in mind that when you see news, oh, this is terrible, the price of oil is going up, just think about the incentive of the people who caused that to happen. Once that price goes up, that's going to induce entry uh, production in the market. Remember the supply curve, as the price of the uh, product increases, the quantity supplied to the market will increase. Surprise, surprise. So there we are. So no, no real panic there. And of course, you go over here, the gold bugs, they don't see an apocalypse. Gold is going down in price, so is silver. So there's no panic in the commodities markets, in the metals markets right now either. Now here's an interesting thing. Bond yields went up about what? A little more than two basis points today. Okay, yield goes up, price goes down. The reason that would be happening is that uh, bondholders are selling out. They're selling their bonds. Interestingly enough, they're also selling their equities. So that means that uh, there's a broad-based exit from longer-term investments right now, stocks and bonds. Let's look at, let, let me show you something here. This is the whole 500 stocks of the S&P 500 I'm about to look at. Now look at the, act, the volume today. On average, the average daily volume of those 500 stocks was 3.9 billion shares on the average day over the last year. <coughs> Look at today, a little more than half of that. So this is not an active day. This is a quiet day. This is investors just moving money, moving their investments out of bonds and stocks and putting it back into cash, into money markets and things like that, what we call cash. And uh, that's a cautious, that's just being cautious. We don't know, we're, we're a little uncertain on what's going to happen. And so in an environment like that, the heavies are just going to get off the table and get over on the sidelines just to see what comes next or to get a clear picture of what's going on next. So that you can see that, you can almost see the, the large animal. It's pulling back and sitting, coming off to the sidelines. So when you see these numbers, the S&P 500, the Dow 30, and the NASDAQ and the Russell and all that going down, that's not as bad as it looks because that was on what we call thin volume. It was light volume today. So in other words, this isn't everyone panicking and running. It was just uh, a bearish day where we're getting out of in heavy investments and just waiting to see what comes next. And overall, and let me show you this here. Now I've brought up the, um, the currency markets before and I wanna do it again here. Euro to the dollar. The euro had appreciated to as much as about a dollar twelve to the euro. 
and it has depreciated since then back down to what is it right now 107 to the dollar that means that the dollar is regaining its strength if the euro is depreciating the dollar is appreciating against it so that is indicating that the markets are leaning back toward the dollar and away from the euro the same is happening over here in london the uh, uh british uh, the british pound uh was appreciating against the dollar and now it has depreciated back down again so in other words again there was a movement toward the euro and toward the uh, pound as currencies to go with and now that is going the other way where the the global markets are moving back toward the dollar again and so that's sort of a global indicator of relative strength of the underlying economies of the U.S. versus Europe and the U.S. versus England or Great Britain. Uh, so you kind of have to look, get a wider view before you start to panic about things. And right now, you know, the dollar is still the currency of the world. And if you've heard that talk about BRICS, that is just, never mind, it's just a, a laughable when, if you look at the currencies that are in the, that new proposed market basket currency to replace the dollar as a global currency. It ain't gonna happen. Well, it will happen for countries that want to have, uh, do their shopping at Walmart. Okay, now, notice, uh, Tokyo had a choppy day. It surged and then it bounced boing, boing, boing. So there was some good news uh, in, in Tokyo early in the day. And then from there, it just was a lot of uncertainty about was it good news, was it bad news? So it just kind of bounced around after that. Now, London started out, once Tokyo had closed down for the night, London woke up and it started down well, a pretty decent amount. But through the day, it slowly crawled back up until it finished almost flat for the day. So I don't know what that was, but whatever was going on there, over here on our side of the Atlantic, the market started out grouchy and they just got... But notice something else. Notice how whatever happened, happened in the morning. Do you see how all three of the all three of those numbers, they uh, the spark charts? You can see that they all slid in the morning, and then they laid off that, and they began a, a mild recovery in the afternoon. Just sort of looking at these numbers are one thing. Numbers are awesome things, but if you can't look past the numbers and look at where how the numbers are moving and ask the questions under the surface why and what is this related to and then you know you're just on the numbers and you'll end up doing something terrible with your life like being an accountant uh, i shouldn't say that. i didn't say that i did not say that accountants are awesome they make a lot more money than i do yeah maybe that's why i'm so grouchy about them anyway let me uh go through a couple of stocks here just just for the fun of the day um Anyone got a stock? Don't say Tesla. Shell. Shell. Ooh, now that's a... Uh, 
Shell PLC, I think that is an ADR of Shell, because Shell is a Dutch company. Yep. What do you tell me about it? Well, first of all, you can buy a share of it for 6336. Uh, you can sell a share of it for 6335, so the bid ask spread is very tight. Now, notice the trading volume versus the average day was light. It was, it was, you can see that investors are overall staying away from a lot of things right now. It's just how they are right now. So then going over here, really safe company, 0.65 beta, definitely, according to PE, it's undervalued. Shell is profitable, see the positive EPS, and it does pay a nice fat dividend. Okay, we're going to go through the usual. Wait a Keep watching. Thank you. That's going to be a spike on the podcast recording. Uh, so we do it. We're going to first look at the one-year holding period capital gain using Yahoo. Pulling up a calculator. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to find the capital gain. <coughs> oh. something, something has set me off, so there will be a few more of these before there's a grand finale, I think. <laughs> 7231. So in other words, you buy it today. In a year, you'll collect $72.31. Uh, and so you divide that by your initial investment today, which was 63.39. And then you always minus one. Don't forget to minus that one after you do the division. And then you say equals. So now we're going to times that by 100 to turn it into a percent. Well, that's decent. For a company with a beta that low, that's not bad at all. Just, that's just a capital gain of 14.07%. Now you add in the dividend yield, 3.68%, and your total return for a one-year hold, according to Yahoo, 17.75%. And on a stock with a low beta, hey, you can't beat that. Profitable company, low beta stock with a return like that, that's that that's kind of impressive that's a decent stock and notice that it was up today obviously because oil is up today so uh, overall you know if you're into hydrocarbons and helping pollute the earth and cause more hot winters uh, hot summers and all that not that it's your problem because do understand this you would make an investment like this because it's a good investment for you. If you have sentiments that go beyond how much you're going to make, then that's going to shape and you're going to find that your investment possibilities are far more limited. Now, that's your call, how you want to play it. But if you're managing someone else's money, your company's money, your family's money, 
then you might want to consider what do I make off this versus what am I doing for the world, the environment, and all that. It's a personal choice you have to make. Uh, harsh as that may seem. Let's look at another one. Johnson & Johnson. It's down today. Yeah, it's down pretty hard. J&J, three-letter symbol, no surprise, no surprise, New York Stock Exchange, NYSE. Four letters, NASDAQ, three, two, one letters, the big dogs. Now, here's what's... See, this is... Yahoo is... I. Yahoo is terrible because these numbers, the bid and ask, are wrong. The bid will be less than the ask, less than or equal to the ask. And so one of these numbers is more updated than the other. So I got to leave those alone. Now, if I look at Johnson & Johnson, notice that right now it is closer to its 52-week low than it is to its 52-week high. However, interestingly enough, if I switch over to here and look, the P-E ratio is saying that it's about correctly valued right now, around 30. So that's kind of an interesting thing here, is that it's near its 52-week low, but it seems to be near its intrinsic value. So you've got to look at those numbers against each other. But notice that this is definitely a safe stock. Johnson & Johnson. It sells basics, medical stuff, uh, Johnson Johnson cosmetics, baby powders. Who doesn't like baby powder every morning? I do. Don't hate me for it. No. Uh, you think about it from the perspective, this is a company that's here to stay. Johnson & Johnson, they sell Q-tips, baby powder. They made a vaccine that sort of works against COVID, uh, uh, to protect you from COVID-19. So, uh, so it's obviously a company that's relatively safe. Now, notice that it's a profitable company, $4.93 per share in earnings. So that's the good news right there. Now, and it pays a decent dividend, almost a 3% dividend. So if you bought one, if you bought a share of Johnson & Johnson for $158, you are reasonably assured that at least you'll make 3% on that over the next year. Now let's go for the capital gains and the dividend yield together. According to Yahoo, if you bought it today in a year, you would be able to sell it for $181.90. Divided by your initial investment today, and over beginning, the beginning is 158.01.01. And then you minus the one, please don't forget to do that, equals. Now you times that by 100, Holy cow, another one that has a darn nice return, 
1-2% over the next, for a one-year hold. And now, if we add in the dividend, which is going to bring you another 2.96%, your total and a holding period return for a one-year hold would be 18.08%. Now, that's not bad at all. For a low beta stock, there you go. There's another one. The thing that you, uh, I'm, I'm emphasizing here is that with just numbers and a simple calculator, just basic numbers and a simple calculator, you can have, go a long way toward deciding what is and what is not a good investment for you. You don't need blogs and talking heads on financial news networks, but you don't need to run out to the internet, which is a hotbed of bullcrap. You can see for yourself, using the science of mathematics, I'll be darned, you can tell this would be one of those good investments. Shell would be a good investment too. But I could turn it around and look at other companies and I could see they're not as good. And so that's one of the things that I do in this class is give you the power to use the theory and the words and the terms and actually apply them and possibly make your life better down the road. Okay, that's that. Now, this lecture is on financial statements, and I'll spill it into Monday, and I'll back off the due date for this assignment a couple of days, but this is financial statements. This is mostly accounting. This is my lecture where I teach accounting, and every time I walk in to do this lecture, I think to myself, do I want to teach accounting or do I want to kill myself? And this, as usual, I left my razor blades in my office. <laughs> so we're just gonna have to go with it here and do some darned accounting. Now the first thing that I will point out to you is that we need the accounting because it is the accounting numbers that we have to twist around and recast and torture to get what we want in finance. And you'll see me doing that a lot this semester. As I do I, this morning, I swear, I took accounting numbers and, I, and the torture that I did to them is probably in violation of the Geneva Convention to get what I needed, which was a uh, uh, cash conversion cycle. But the accounting is absolutely crucial. However, I'm going to have to do some things. The, state, the ones that we're focusing on are the income statement, the balance sheet, the statement of cash flows, and the statement of retained earnings. There is another one that is so little talked about in traditional accounting classes, especially your, the ones most of you would take, the financial and managerial accounting. This last one, the notes to the financial statement, have all of the explanations in them, the secrets. And I will even show you some of that when I do an actual example here. When I, when I was doing consulting, one of the things that I did 
was I would bring dead public companies back to life. It was called a reverse merger of a, into a public shell. Now, I would take a company that was dead. It, it had been it sometime decades ago, almost a century ago in one case, it had been listed on an exchange, it had done an IPO, it had done all that stuff, and somewhere along the line, it just fizzled out and died. The uh, board of directors was last seen leaving town in a late model huff. Uh, it was gone. And what I would do is I would essentially recast it, bring it back to life, and then insert a private company into it, a reverse merger. And then that private company would become the public company. It was technically legal, but I was chased down on a number of occasions by divisions of security of states that were absolutely convinced that what I was doing was illegal. But they never caught up with me. I almost got caught, I almost got prosecuted once. I would have won, but it was a bazaar where the guy who wanted the division of securities of one state, he got me on the phone and he was trying his best. I, he was recording the conversation and he was absolutely convinced that he could get me to admit that what I was doing was illegal. And I wanted to, I wanted to try to be his friend and at the ultimately, I got him on the topic of religion and I got him to believe that I wanted to convert to his faith. And uh, the, the chase ended. I never heard from him again because he thought I had, anyway, weird things, weird life. Okay, but the key was that there was no trading symbol in these companies. They had died so long ago that the trading symbol had vanished. So I had to go and file a specific application with the National Association of Securities Dealers, the NASD. They are the ones that assign trading symbols. The document, the, the application was called a 15C211. And I learned how to work with the NASD to have them qualify my application for a trading symbol. And this one compliance officer, I worked with her on a number of occasions. She was an older woman, her name was Claire. She was mean as dirt. I mean, she was just evil. And I really liked her. And she, she began to explain things. She said, here's the thing. You've got these nice financial statements. You've dolled them up. You've got some accountant in New York City, some low-life accountant to certify them, audit them. She said, okay, fine. But there's something that you need to put in the financial statements. Okay, what have I missed? She said, there's a note that you should put as the last note in the financial statements. And it goes like this. It's a script. These financial statements are prepared according to gener uh, generally accepted accounting pr principles consistently applied. Those principles assume that the company is a going concern. That may not be the case with this company and investors are cautioned to consider that in any investment decision. Here's what she meant by it. Here's what that means. And it was in the notes 
but it was the last note. No one would ever look at it, but it covered my ass if anyone ever sued me. Here's, how, here's the idea. You know when you take in, uh, let's say, you sir work for me, okay? You, you earned, in the last two-week period, $300. No, wait a minute, you, $150, okay? Now, I haven't paid you yet, but on my f- income statement, I say wage expense $150, but it didn't happen. I put that $150 expense here, account uh, wage payable over on the income on the balance sheet. And then when I do pay you, it goes from that accrual accounts payable up to a credit to cash. You follow me? That would only be reasonable to do if my company will live long enough to make good on it. In other words, financial statements are always created on the underlying assumption that the company will continue on for the foreseeable future. Accounts receivable, accounts payable, wages payable, all those things assume that the company will keep going. But with a little tiny company like these little piss-ass companies I was doing, that's not an assumption you should make. Most of them did die because, but I was using accrual accounting, you know, the, you know, accounts payable, accounts receivable, all that. And so those notes were carrying a warning that no one bothered to look at because who looks at the notes to the financial statement? Who considers them one of the critical financial statements? And yet there they are. So you keep that in mind as you are investors and as you are corporate uh, bigwigs someday is that those notes are not trivial. They are useful. Just a little side note there that I always tell folks that, yeah, we kind of ignore the notes. We don't consider them one of the big statements. But there they are. Hmm. Okay. Now, the next thing I'm going to do here is I'm going to go back through getting financial statements. There's one source and only one source you should ever use for financial statements. That is the SEC, because every company that is public must report on a regular basis to the SEC. It must report its financial statements. And since the early 2000s, with the enactment of the Sarbanes-Oxley, if they lie, then not only will the company be punished, but those officers and directors and the external accountants and the lawyers all have to sign them. So if there's a lie, those people, individuals, can be fined and in some circumstances sent to prison. There is no other document that places the corporation and its officers and directors in such jeopardy. So that's why when you go for financial statements, well, let's go back here. I'm going to look at Johnson & Johnson. I'm going to go J&J, NJ, and I'm going to go to the 10Ks on the right side, click the plus, and I'm going to get the K for this 
work. And you don't click on the hyperlink text. You click on the button filing for the 10K. If you haven't gotten this written down yet, do so. I could very well, on a quiz, just say, pull up and give me this number from the financial statements of. It's that easy, but you have to know where to do it. Now, once you go and click on that filing button, you will come to a screen that will give you the chance to see the documents. But over here, right in the middle on the left, you will see interactive data. You click on that blue button, and that takes you to another screen. Now you'll see what we used to call an accordion drop-down, where you can look at them, consolidated balance sheet, consolidated statement of earnings, and all that. But you can also download the actual Excel financial statements, all of them, all at once. And these, this is everything. It is hundreds of, uh, dozens, I should say, of financial statements. A lot of them are backwaters, like all their leasing agreements, their compensation agreements, their employee stock option plans, and all of the notes in full extended form. If you're looking for a specific subject, you could pull these financial statements up and then go uh, in Excel, and then just have Excel do the one where you find the search option, compensation, and then it will f show you all of the sheets that have something about compensation in them. So that is anything you could want, it's there. It's kind of scary though, and the one thing that you learn, and this is true in a lot of different areas of life, don't look at the giant picture. Know what you want and go after it, because otherwise you're going to get lost in the forest. So you can see that this thing has balance sheets, balance sheets, earnings, statements of earnings, statements of compensation, so you need to start rearranging. This is your workspace. You can put things wherever the hell you want and be reasonably assured that then you will be able to move around your interest, your targets of interest with ease. Now, I've done that in the case of Johnson & Johnson. Otherwise, you're going to see me flailing around like an idiot looking for financial statements. Cautions to start with. What I've done is I put the consolidated statement of earnings, the consolidated balance sheet, and the consolidated statement of cash flows, and the consolidated statement of equity all in one place. Here's the first thing. There, it used, and I've, I've harped on this before, and I'm going to say it again. We used to have a standard name for each thing. The sheets had a, a specific name, and the entries in the sheets had specific names, and they all had to be there. That's no longer the case. An income statement can be called a statement of earnings, a consolidated statement of earnings, a statement of the results of operations. It can have all kinds of different names. You just have to look around to find it.
the balance sheet. It can be called the balance sheet. It can be called the consolidated statement of financial position. It can be called a lot of different things. The statement of cash flows. That one usually is called the statement of cash, cash flows. Uh, I think that it is here. Yeah, that one usually. However, a caution on this one. Were any of you taught another name for the statement of cash flows? It was an old name that used to be used all the time, and you don't see it anymore. The only thing that I bring up about it is simply this. If, you look at, if you're looking at old financial statements, you might see this name for the statement of cash flows. Does it, none of you have ever heard. It used to be called the sources and uses statement because that was more descriptive. It's the sources of cash, the uses of cash. And that, that was what it used to be called, sources and uses statement. It's not, uh, but, okay. Now, one other thing, just a caution. Some lines are missing from some financial statements. And... <coughs> you probably will have to put in. One that is very commonly missing is gross income, which can come under different names. Gross profit, gross income, whatever. And I'll show you that one in a minute. I'm trying to think, there's one other thing that I wanted to bring up about this. One other thing, what was it? Oh, a larger picture. The core statement is the balance sheet. The other statements are actually side calculations to get entries for the balance sheet. They're like giant lymph nodes sitting on the sides of the balance sheet. But the core, and I'll show you this in a minute here, but one more thing. And this used to be kind of like we all taught it in accounting. But I'm not sure that it is taught so much anymore. It used to be taught that the statement of earnings was a flow. It was, a, it was captured a flow of a river. And the balance sheet was the collection point at the end of the fiscal year or the fiscal period. Think about it this way. Uh, do you ever run? Are you a runner or a jogger? No. Really? That means I can't run over you when I'm driving down the road. Uh, madam, are you a runner? You are. Great. So now you, I see you running along with the chariots of fire music, ba ba, ba ba, okay? That's the income statement, you running. And I'm driving along and I see you and I yell out to you, hi! You turn around and look at me and you don't see that there's a giant wall and you run into it. Okay? That's the balance sheet. 
All of that muscle development, all of those nutrients pumping, the adenosine triphosphate breaking down to the adenosine diphosphate and then going back up and all of that kind of stuff, that was building as you were running. And then when you hit the wall, it goes And then we can see all that happened to you during your run. Ah, yes indeed. Her nutrient levels went up, her pancreas, obviously producing good insulin, and this stuff over here, what does ooh, that's her bowel. Okay, all those things uh, there on the wall, balance sheet. And if, I, I promise you, you will never hear the income statement and balance sheet described that way again in your life, fortunately for you folks. But literally, it is stopping and saying, capture it all right here at this moment in time called the end of the fiscal year. So when I look at these, I say the statement of earnings is what happened during the year from January 1, from uh, January 1, 2022 to December 31, where in this case, why do they do that? I hate these weird years, uh, like, but anyway, that was, all that was going on during that year. The balance sheet is what did it come to at the end of the year? So the consolidated statement of earnings is the run, the balance sheet is the wall, and the statement of cash flows. How did it happen? Look down here at the end. Look at all these sources and uses, to use the old term, of cash. Well, we had this come out at the end. And then we had this depreciation and amortization, which really didn't happen. So we got to put that back in. And then we have the compensation, money that was uh, bought in stock to give to people and uh, write downs that we say this happened but it had already happened but now we have to put it back in saying it happened uh, so we have to put it back in and all that kind of stuff and uh, continued deferred never mind okay now and this we said well, we had put off paying taxes, and <laughs> this is where we actually paid them that we owed a few years ago. We said we paid it back then, but now we actually paid it. Look at how you're building the cash profile. Now here, assets and liabilities, investing activities. Now this one is important to us in finance because this is where we spent or didn't spend money. So right here, see how in the year previously, Johnson & Johnson had spent about uh, $3.7 billion on big stuff, prop plant equipment, machines, and all that. And we could see that they upped that this year. More money came out. This is money going out. That's why they put it in parentheses. It's actual money that went out. And that's important to us. And here are a couple of other categories where money came in or went out. Uh, along the way. Purchases of investments. Well, we invested in $30 billion 
la a year ago, oh, a year pre in the year previous. This year, we put $32.4 billion into new investments and all of this. And then we sold some stuff. We sold $25 billion in the year previous. We sold off $41 billion, $41.6 billion. What I'm trying to get to, I don't want to get too far into the numbers because that's not what's important here. What's important here is they're showing us cash being used, cash being brought in. That's the whole point of this. Now, we go through cash from financing activities. Okay, we, we paid $11.87 billion in dividends. Yeah, that's cash going out and all of this kind of stuff. Okay, let's go clear down here. You add and subtract all of this stuff and then where the hell do they have a final cash position? Interest. Statement of cash, there should be net cash. There's not a final number here. Well, that sucks.com. Where the hell is the last number? I can't find this final number. Do they have it somewhere in here? I'll be darned. They didn't put the final number in this. Well, that's got to be caught by the SEC sooner or later. Well, crap on that. They didn't put in the final number. Operations. Well, let me do it real quick here. I, I can do. It's not that hard to do. I apologize. I thought they would have that. I should have watched, looked at this more carefully. Okay. Seventeen. Seven. Seventeen. Darn it. Seven. Come on. Seventeen. Nine forty-one. Okay. What's the next one? They don't do any of the sums. Okay. Plus, four, uh, I'll have to do, well, they do that one. 6970, 6970, plus, this is old real fast, plus 1216, plus zero, um, minus 380, minus 1663, minus 17. Now, did they do the changes, net cash from operating? Oh, I see what they, I see what they did here. My bad. Okay, I'm going to just take the 17941, 17941, and then I'm going to hit the net cash flow from operating activities plus 21,194, okay, from investing activities minus 12,371. Good God, I'm doing accounting here. And then 
from uh, financing activities minus eight minus eight eight seven one god this is way too much like work oh there it is it is there hire the old guy he's fun to watch making an ass of himself it was right here the cash <laughs> I was I didn't see it they have these weird things down here that just kind of blew me away I don't see those again there wouldn't have been anything in nor back in the day after the cash at the end of the period but let me show you here here's cash for the year previous Here's cash for this year. Now come over here to the balance sheet. 14,417. A slight difference. A slight difference. Isn't that interesting? But they're almost the same. There's something a little wonky about these financials. Those two numbers should be identical. And on most of them, they would be. But on this one, I don't know. There's something weird going on with them. But anyway, the sources, the statement of cash flows shows you the results of how the cash got to its balance sheet position at the end of the year. Now let me do something here. I'm not even going to touch that retain, statement of retained earnings. It looks way too complicated. Simplified. Retained earnings. I took one look at that and I knew I was asking for it with, because they had all kinds of extra lines in there. In a simplified form, statement of retained earnings, you'll have your uh, stock paid in. Now this could be broken down into several different categories. But this is essentially how much money was paid for the stock of the corporation over the years in the IPO and in subsequent seasoned offerings. It's a number. They can break this down into par, at par value and additional, but let's just say that it's $800,000. Now, the next one is going to be the retained earnings. Now the first one is beginning. Let's say at the beginning of the period it was, let's say, 100,000. Then you add the net income. Let's say the net income for the period was $20,000 minus the dividends that were paid out. Let's say that was $5,000. Retained earnings at end.
So that would be how much you started with. 100,000 plus 20 minus 5 would be 115,000. Okay? That would be your retained earnings. And that's the statement of retained earnings. And then you add the stock that was sold and you will get 800,000 plus 115,000 would be 915,000. That would be the value, the total shareholders equity. That line right there would be the total shareholders equity. And then you would add that to the liability liabilities and the assets the, the liabilities total liabilities plus the shareholders equity should equal the total assets now do I care how much if you know this like the back of your hand no you just have to know the outline of it more important for finance is what's going on inside what's going on inside of the company so I'm going to go back here and I'm going to take the balance sheet and I'm going to break it down so that it has more meaning to us. The first thing I'm going to do, cash and cash equivalents, clear down here. That is called the, the, the current assets. And I'll put that in a nice pretty color. I like a peach. Now you take the current liabilities, and I'll put that in a nice pink. That's the current liabilities. Now you take the total current assets minus the total current liabilities, and you get the net working capital. There's one that is a little more important to us and it's a little simpler. In this case right here, I would take only my accounts receivable and inventories minus my accounts payable and my accrueds and my accrueds. Actually, I wouldn't even take those. I'd just take my accounts payable and my accrued liabilities and maybe the current portion of long-term debt, which they don't do here. Now, if I just take, take just my accounts receivable and my inventories, that is called current operating assets. Current operating assets. If I take just my payables and my liabilities, accrued liabilities, that would be called current operating liabilities. Now, if I take the current operating assets minus the current operating liabilities, I get something that's important to us. It's called net operating working capital. Net working capital, current assets minus current liabilities. Net operating working capital is current operating assets minus current operating liabilities. In our world in finance, we separate operations from other things, other things happening with the corporation. Because 
for us, the operations of the company are primary. Financing activities and all that kind of stuff, yeah, that's great and we do that. But first we need to see what the state of the operations are of the company. Now let me take you over here for a minute to this, to this side of the story. A couple of things here. Whoops, I went the wrong way. Where am I? Oh, okay. Okay, now, a couple of things. A lot of companies are not reporting their gross profit these days. A lot of companies are not. So you have to insert that line. It's just this minus this, okay? This one, it used to be very much expected that this SG and A, selling general and administrative, or in this case, selling marketing and administrative, it would be broken down into what was inside it. Wages, salaries, you know, advertising, uh, light bills, shipping expenses, they would be broken down in there. They wouldn't just report the final number. That's not the case hardly ever anymore. So how do you know what those, those you know, line by line expenses were? Might be important to know. Well, there's where the notes to the financial statement come in because they have to show, they have to tell there what was in SG&A. So that, there's those notes to the financial statement taking on importance. Like if I see SG&A jump from one, you know, from one period to the next, it might be nice to know what exactly jumped. Was it wages? Was it meals and entertainment? Was it the light bills? Was it shipping charges? That's important to know. So, you know, for our purposes here, we don't need to worry too much about it. But in general, if you want to see what's going on inside of SGNA, you have to go to the notes anymore. Let me show you something else here. Here's something that's interesting. I'm looking here. They don't put in a line right here. Insert. Operating. Profit. That can also be called operating income. Another common name for it is earnings before interest and taxes, EBIT. That would be gross profit right there minus your SGNA and this other little stuff. That's a hugely important line and they leave it out. EBIT. I don't, do you see it? Am I missing something? Nope, it's just not there. Now I'm gonna show you another line. This one is not 
usually shown. And it's oftentimes not taught. But I am finding that in actual corporations, it's kind of big stuff these days. They take depreciation, they take gross income minus everything except depreciation and they put that in there and so uh, and they they call that EBITDA earnings before interest and taxes and depreciation and amortization they don't even list depreciation expense here which is another thing that is you just wouldn't have seen back in the old days. And the question is, did they hide depreciation and amortization up here in selling marketing and administrative expenses? Or is that this line in process research and development? The problem is that they don't report depreciation expense and we need to know that because that is not a cash outflow. It, it didn't happen. <sighs> a mother's work is never done. Now I'm going to take you over and I'm going to show you one more. And I'm going to put this off to the side. I'm going to save this one. But now I'm going to go back here and show you another one. Let me take you back here. Now every one of these I'm showing you is, is not perfect. I'm going to take you to Target, Target. And I'm going to pull up its financial statements. For now, Target is has a reputation for being very transparent, but you're going to see something here that is sort of less than transparent. So I'm going to take the consolidated statement of operations, income statement. Okay, that's nope. I don't want that one. Statement of financial position. That's the balance sheet, for God's sake. I'm going to scoot that over here and put it with my statement of operations. And then, just to finish this off real quick, where the hell is my statement of cash flows? There it is. So I'm going to drag this one back over. Now, again, I encourage you, when you get these financial statements, Move things around, for heaven's sakes. This is your workspace, so you can put these in, a, in an order that will be useful to you. For me, income statement, balance sheet, and statement of operation, uh, statement of cash flows. Those are the big ones for me. Now here's something real quick. Look at the consolidated statement of cash flows. Cash and cash equivalents. 229. Now look at the balance sheet. 2229. See, this is what you should see. For the year previous, cash was 5911 in the sources and uses statement, and it was 5911 in the balance sheet. They should be the same number. Okay? Now the next thing I'm going to take you to. Here I can do something. 
you've got your total revenue cost of sales. Notice that Target doesn't report gross income. Insert, so we're going to put in the gross income. And then I'm going to get it. It's just your revenues minus your costs. Cost of goods sold. Minus cost of goods sold. And then I'm going to take it over here. Now, getting back to realistic, using the numbers. Notice the target has had sales increasing year over year. Good news. But look at what happened to their gross profit. Gross profit is your sales minus your cost of sale, your wholesale, retail minus wholesale. Oh my God. It rose nicely from 21 to 22, from, well, tw 2020 to 2021. And then it took a toilet break in 22. Now we begin to do finance with the big question, WTF. What happened? Obviously, target sales, revenue are growing, and yet something went wrong. And it's obvious what went wrong. It's wholesale costs skyrocketed. Then you have to ask yourself, why the hell didn't Target simply raise its prices? Why didn't it pass those increases in its wholesale costs onto its customers? You can see that it obviously didn't do that. Are they out of their minds? Why wouldn't Target simply pass the cost of its, uh, its wholesale costs onto its customers? Is there any logical reason for that? You are business people. These are the kinds of questions you will answer in, as corporate people. What do you say? Any idea? They're known for some other prices being low. Like they're known for like reasonably price quoting. That's part of it. That's part of it. The, the answer is in that vein. You see, Target is in a competitive field. Target is in a competitive industry. Target faces the behemoth of Walmart. It faces stores like uh, uh, around here, Meyer. It faces other stores that people could go to. And here's the problem with Target and its customers. You are its customers. Professional or pre-professional, college students, young, upwardly mobile professionals, they are not known for loyalty. And so Target knows that you, if they jack their price up too much, you will just drive to the next block and go to Walmart. They don't have the luxury of passing on their costs. And as a, in young, for a younger person, you might like a nice soap, uh, shampoo. Okay, I'm gonna buy this. But if they jack up the price of it, you're gonna, well, this stuff says that it's good for hair and body and it can do dishes, 
and it can wash a car, ah, whatever, and it's cheaper, you will go with price consciousness. They are trapped. They're in that awful place where they can't just raise their prices because their wholesale prices went up. And the other side of it is Target doesn't have enough market power to twist the arms of its wholesalers. Walmart, they will tell their suppliers what they will be paid. I know this for a fact. I consulted for a company that wanted to sell at Walmart. And Walmart told them, you will charge us this for what you have. I mean, talk about guts. I mean, Walmart said, oh, you don't want to sell it to us at that low, low price? Well, we just won't buy it. Screw you, F you, buy. So Walmart has the power to control its wholesale costs. Target doesn't. It might have some control, but it certainly obviously didn't have enough control over its, its uh, suppliers to tell them not to jack its wholesale costs up that much. Okay, so here we go. Now I'm going to show you something. Here's that one I was talking about. Insert a line right here. Earnings before earnings before interest. God, why can't I spell interest <coughs> taxes? Depreciation and amortization. E B I T D A. And that would simply be taking your gross income, your gross profit, less your selling general and administrative expenses. In other words, before you take out the depreciation. Now, I bring this up, and I think the book does too. This has become sort of a, a, a big thing in corporate circles. Well, what was EBITDA this uh, quarter? It's just something new that's kind of popular. See, operating income, its other name is... Earnings before interest and taxes. It includes taking away depreciation and amortization. Now, operating income, earnings before interest and taxes, you see either one, some use some other weird thing. Now, here, earnings before taxes. This one, you'll hear the informal term pre-tax. You'll hear me use that term too. Pre-tax. And then net earnings. The, this You could call this net profit, profit, income, earnings. It's got a lot of different names. And so it could be something different. The wording could be different on different financial statements. 
whoever you work for, they'll have their own term for it, and you know, you'll just have to do the translation. But that's the earnings. Now, net earnings, 270, 2780, come on. Consolidated statement of earnings. That isn't it. Where is the statement of shareholder earnings? Net earnings right there. And then you get other income. Then you pay out your dividends. You pay out for buying stock back. All that kind of stuff. That's that. From a, a more complicated version of that. Anyway, I'll finish this up on Monday and we'll move on to happier subjects. That's all I have for you today. I thank you.